passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. As you're soon going to find out, uh, this sermon is, uh, is really personal for me. Uh, it's just God's providence that we're preaching through 1 Timothy chapter 4 today, on the same day that Crystal and I dedicate our daughter Mara, because this passage is all about enjoying the good gifts that God has given you. In fact, you're probably going to love this application today more than any other uh, sermon, because it is all about enjoying the life that God has given you. 1 Timothy chapter 4 addresses an issue in the church in Ephesus that I think uh, in one sense can seem like it's so distant from us, not something that we struggle with today, and yet at the same time it is something that we all likely wrestle with to some degree or another. I want to just share a couple examples of how this works itself out in my life before we jump into this text. This past Tuesday uh, started the way that pretty much every single day has started since uh, I became a dad. I set the alarm for 5 a.m., which is a a normal routine of mine, Uh, but I was woken up at 3.30 by the beautiful little girl that you saw up here. Uh, Mara decided that she was going to start talking to herself at 3.30, and and her laughs and her coos uh, in the crib are both instantaneously melting my heart and yet also driving me crazy because I am sleep-deprived. I get up, I, I rock her for about 30 minutes or so, and uh, she finally falls asleep. I, I put her back uh, in her crib. I go ahead and head back to bed thinking I'll try to get a few more minutes of, of sleep before getting up for the day. And I stare at the ceiling for 20 minutes. Decide it's time to get up for the day and, and start the day at 4.15. Now, I quickly take a shower. I make some breakfast. And, and I have to have coffee now because how else am I going to survive? Uh, and, and then I, I go and read the Bible and do some, some prayer. I have big plans for the morning. I'm going to catch up on my Bible reading plan because, yes, pastors do indeed slip behind on those, uh, so, so feel okay there. Uh, but I quickly uh, become distracted again by Mara. She's awake, and this time I don't think she's going to go back to sleep. So I put the Bible down, I finish my prayers, and go and grab her. And, uh, and when I head into her room, I, re- I realize that Mara actually does still want to sleep. It's just that she's not going to accept anything less than sleeping in my arms. Oh, that's tough, isn't it? And so I spend the next 45 minutes in the dark. I hold my sleeping, beautiful daughter while war inside me is going on. On one side, I'm saying, God, I love this. This is perfect. I don't want this to end. Thank you so much for this gift. And yet at the same time, there's a side of me that's saying, well, where do you go, Jordan? Another day where your Bible time, your prayer time has been cut short. How do you honestly expect that you're going to be able to shepherd God's people if you can't shepherd yourself first? It's five years ago, five and a half years ago, Crystal and I had just gotten married. We were just moving into our first home, a 550 square foot apartment in the north suburbs of Chicago, and the TV that we had had before then uh, that I brought into the marriage was on its last leg, and so I spent weeks wrestling with whether it was okay to buy a new TV. I finally bought one, a whopping 24-inch flat-screen TV. You know, we, we spare no expense in the Gowan family. 
But instantly I was racked with guilt over my purchase. I began to think about, well, was I actually being a good steward with the finances that God has given to us? Should we have spent that money on a TV or, or should we have given it to the church or should we have given that to the poor or supported some friends of ours who are on the mission field? Fall, four years ago, Crystal and I still live in the north suburbs of Chicago. My uncle has given me tickets to a football game in Iowa City. It starts at 11 a.m. on Saturday. I have plans to meet some friends before the game, uh, but that means I'm going to have to leave very early. Well, I, I, I oversleep. And so I'm running late, and so I hop in the car and I turn on the audio Bible that I have as a substitute for actually reading my Bible. And as I'm driving to Iowa City for the next several hours, I'm, I'm wrestling with whether I love college football too much. Wrestling with whether there are things in my life, things like college football, are idols. And I began to wonder if I should really be spending my entire Saturday driving and going to a football game when I could probably be doing things that are, quote, more productive. It's about a month ago. I climb into bed. And as I'm drifting off to sleep, the memories of the day are replaying in my mind. I'm thinking of my son Silas's laughter as I tickle him, and both of us are laughing so hard that we are in pain. I think of Mara's coos and her smiles whenever we make eye contact. And I'm thinking of, of Crystal's smile and her selflessness that's on display constantly. And these things are running through my mind as I'm falling asleep, and I drift off to sleep and I forget to pray. I wake up wondering if I love my family too much, whether my family is an idol to me. It's 15 years ago. My grandfather has recently died after a long battle with a form of Alzheimer's, and our entire family wears their grief and their sorrow on their sleeves as they mourn the loss of a father, of a brother, of a son, of a friend, and a grandfather. Months pass, and while most of us have grieved well and have have closure, there are some who don't. They continue, to mourn grie- uh, they continue to mourn greatly. The question, of course, is what does God do with this continual grief that we just can't get over? Is it a sign that we love too much, a sign of idolatry of our family that we have lost before we were ready? It's a Sunday morning here at Crosswinds. I'm preaching on Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6 is the first chapter of Gideon's life, and it is all about Gideon's struggle with idolatry. As I prepare the sermon, I bring up common idols that face us, things like our family, our work, our possessions, and more. I mean well in my sermon, but have I crossed a line? How do we balance enjoying God's good gifts and idolatry? If you hear all of these different snapshots of my life, perhaps you can relate to one of them, or two of them, or all of them. Have you ever struggled with a low-grade guilt in your life from not spending enough time in the Bible, whatever that might be? Have you ever had regrets or guilt because you bought something for yourself? Have you ever wondered if you love your hobbies too much, if you idolize your family, if you struggle with the idea of guilt over the loss of a family member? How do we as a church, how do we as Christians balance the good things that God has given us and enjoying those things with idolatry? 
the challenges in the gospel that Jesus gives to us. And I'm paraphrasing here when Jesus says that we are to love God more than anything else in our lives. Jesus says that if we are truly to love him, that we must hate our family members, our father, our mother, our brothers and sisters in comparison to him. Jesus tells us, uh, or excuse me, tells the rich young ruler that he is to sell all of his possessions and give the money to the poor. How do we balance the calling of the gospel to deny ourselves with, at the same time, the enjoyment that we experience from good gifts of God? I think that this morning's text is vitally important answering these questions. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy 4 uh, is a passage where Paul gives us the framework to wrestle through these questions. How we are supposed to treat God's gifts. They don't, they don't answer, doesn't answer all of the questions that we may have. But it's a starting place for us when we wrestle with questions about when should we deny ourselves? When should we sell our possessions? When are we actually guilty of idolatry? How do we enjoy our middle class comforts when there are people on the other side of the world who are living in extreme poverty? Can I live my life and follow God? while enjoying the life that he has given me at the same time. These past few months, we've been working our way through 1 Timothy. We've been looking at what does it actually mean for us to be the church. And one of our first Sundays in this book, we discovered that Paul was addressing some false teaching in Ephesus. Timothy had become a uh, a new pastor in Ephesus, and he was struggling with some of the false teaching in the church. Earlier, he had addressed this, and yet now here he addresses this head on. Apparently, there were some church leaders in Ephesus who were claiming that if you wanted to actually be spiritual, if you really wanted to follow God, then the key to doing that was to live a life without pleasure, to live a life of complete and utter self-sacrifice without any sort of enjoyment. Paul brings up two specific examples in this passage, food and marriage. Apparently, these people were saying that food is nothing more than a necessary evil. It is for sustenance and nothing more, that we are not to enjoy it. And they were saying the same thing about marriage. They were saying that if you really want to follow God, then you won't get married. Some were even going as far as saying, if you really want to follow God and you are married, then you should get divorced. This is the false teaching that Paul is trying to address here. He gives two examples, the examples of food and marriage, but it goes far beyond that. This idea of enjoying our lives, of of pleasure in our lives. That's in this context that Paul writes 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Please follow along as I read these verses aloud. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. And teaching of demons. Though through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. You see, today, no one would ever actually ask the question, how 
or no one, should, no one is actually going to be telling us that we should avoid certain foods. No one in our church is running around forbidding marriage, but I don't think that this problem has gone away. The question for us today is a question of how can Christians live faithfully to God while also enjoying the goodness that God has given us in this world. A small example of this. There's a church in the Chicago suburbs. Uh, it's called Harvest Bible Chapel. James McDonald, Walking in the Word, if you're familiar with that. James McDonald is the senior pastor of that. Uh, he got together uh, about seven years ago. He got together a, a group of different pastors from all over the United States who had very different views on ministry. And he sat them down and they addressed or talked about some of the issues that were facing each of these different churches and where they, diff- where they disagreed. He called this the elephant room because of the elephant in the room, all of the different disagreements between them. One of the things, or one of the the topics, was basically on this exact question. How can we live faithfully and follow God while also at the same time enjoying our lives? On one side of the debate was David Platt. If you're familiar with him, he is the author of the book Radical, who in their church, they had decided that they were going to cut goldfish out of the nursery program so that way they could give more money to missions. On the other side of the debate, you had James McDonald, who apparently really likes goldfish because he got very animated in this discussion. How do we balance these two sides? Is David Platt automatically wrong? Is this church automatically wrong? Is James McDonald's church automatically wrong because they don't take goldfish away from their kids? How can we live faithfully while still enjoying life? The passage that I just read, I think, answers this in in three distinct ways. First, it clarifies the danger. Second, it asks or it answers why this is so dangerous for us. And then third and finally, it tells us how we can live as God intended for us to live. As we look at this passage, we're going to see one clear truth. God created us to enjoy him by enjoying his gifts. Each and every one of us was created by God to enjoy God through his gifts. Your spouse, if you're married... You were created by God to enjoy your spouse. Your hobbies, God created you to enjoy your hobbies. Your home, God created you to enjoy your home. What's more, perhaps more accurately, God created you to enjoy him through your spouse, through your hobbies, and through your home. You see, throughout church history, the church has struggled with this idea. They've wrestled with how do we balance faithfulness to God and self-denial with enjoying the good gifts of God. Jesus tells us that we are to be solely devoted to God. How do we do that effectively? And as always, throughout church history, the pendulum has swung to different uh, degrees of extreme. Sometimes the church has overindulged in pleasure, but oftentimes, in fact, more often, in response to the culture, the church has broken away from pleasure. In the early 200s, there was a movement called the ascetic movement. This is a form of asceticism, which essentially means that uh, it is a severe form of self-discipline to avoid pleasure in life for the purpose of increased spiritual devotion, increased devotion to God. And so many in the church, starting in the year 200 or so, began to see pleasure as a bad distraction from God. And so what they did is they tried to cut 
any sort of pleasure out of their lives. Now, surprisingly, considering 1 Timothy chapter 4, many actually began to see marriage as evil. Uh, One early church father named Tertullian actually said that it was better for the human race to become extinct than for men and women to have sexual relationships in marriage even. It was better for the entire human race to go extinct than for a husband and wife to reproduce. Another church father said, quote, married people ought to be ashamed at the state in which they are living. Another early church father said that sexual relationships in marriage were permissible as long as you didn't enjoy it. It was only for repopulating the earth. This goes on for a thousand years. Asceticism is the rule of the land in the church. The church looks down on marriage. The focus of the church is that marriage is for the weak while the godly ones are those who stay single and celibate. And it's not until the time of the Reformation that things improve. People begin to study their Bibles, and as they study their Bibles, they have a different view of creation. God created everything that we see for us to enjoy it because God's creation is good and we should not avoid it. Now, today in our context, you might be saying, well, how exactly does that work its way out? We are not like Ephesus where uh, whenever we have a potluck, there's someone running through the line, knocking the food out of our hands because it's not to be enjoyed. We aren't like the medieval church that would rather have us become extinct as a human race rather than see people be married. And yet I think this same danger is alive and well. I think it expresses itself in, in two ways today. The first, way, the first way that this works itself out is through diminishing earthly physical blessings. Oftentimes today we will diminish earthly physical blessings. And this is a way that this works itself out today. Uh, turn your eyes upon Jesus. This is one of the uh, most famous hymns of the last 100, 125 years Uh, listen to the words of the chorus here. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Now, I'm going to guess that when the author of this hymn wrote the words, the things of earth, they were referring to sinful pleasures. What they were referring to is if we focus on Jesus, then the sins that we struggle with, they will become diminished and we won't struggle with them as, more, as much as we, we did in the past. That's, that's what I'm, I'm assuming that this woman meant. But that's not what it says. It says that the things of earth will grow strangely dim. And the things of earth include my wife. They include my kids. They include the Grand Canyon. They include the oceans. They include the beautiful starry skies at night. I think that one way that this Uh, this problem, this false teaching works itself out today is by forcing us to choose. Are we actually going to follow God or are we going to seek the good things of this world? But do we really have to choose? One author puts it this way, how do I know if I might struggle with an unhealthy view of God's created gifts? Do I regard certain activities such as prayer, Worship and Bible reading is inherently more holy and virtuous than other activities such as doing my job or listening to music or taking a nap. 
Do you feel guilty when you're not spending time in the Bible and instead enjoying one of your hobbies? Instead, taking a much-needed nap. Oftentimes, that works itself out in our subculture today. We have a tendency as evangelicals to think that certain things are holier or better than other God-given gifts. Like naps. That's just on my brain right now. I don't, I don't know why. It's probably because I'm so tired. Another way that this works itself out today. Not only do we have a, a diminishing of God's good gifts, but we also have this subtle sense of guilt when we enjoy things at the expense of prayer, worship, and Bible reading. Quote, do I feel a small amount of guilt because I enjoy legitimate earthly pleasures? Is this guilt connected to any particular concrete sinful attitude or action, or is it rooted in a vague sense that I'm not enjoying or seeking God enough, whatever that may mean? Or that I'm enjoying his gifts too much. The examples that I shared as we began this morning can fit into these two categories, right? Are you racked with guilt? Or do you begin to think that the things of this earth aren't as good as seeking God's face? Like they are diametrically opposed to one another. Should I, Jordan, really feel guilty when my daughter interrupts my Bible reading a few minutes early? Should I really feel bad about buying a TV that is 24 inches in in its size? There's nothing inherently wrong with college football. Should I really feel guilty when I go to one game a year or less? Do I really have to choose between my daughter's smiles and tickling my son and enjoying God? The answer is no. And as I can see, this danger is alive and well in the church. It's different than it was in Ephesus, and yet it is still present today. And you might be asking, why is this inherently wrong? Paul gives us two reasons in this passage. The first one is this. The rejection of God's good gifts is actually a rejection of goodness of the gospel. The rejection of God's good gifts is actually a rejection of the gospel. Notice Paul's harsh words in in verse 1 where he says that the origins of this false teaching is demons. He calls this false teaching demonic. That, That seems very, very harsh. Paul doesn't pull any punches. He says this asceticism, this guilt over enjoying the good gifts of God actually finds its origins in demons. If you think about it, This is what the serpent in Genesis 3 does, is it not? Genesis 1, Genesis 2, God is creating everything, and we see God over and over and over again refer to his creation as good. What's more, in Genesis 2, we see that this creation is an overflow of his goodness for us to enjoy. And then we get to Genesis 3, and the serpent shows up. And the first thing the serpent does is to cast doubt into Adam and Eve's mind about the goodness of God. Hear these words, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she gave some also to her husband who was with her and he ate. Genesis 1, Genesis 2 tell us that God creates everything and creates everything good. He creates everything for our good and then the serpent shows up on the scene and instantly calls into doubt God's good motives. Genesis 1 and 2 clearly paint God as a loving, good father. He gives creation gifts to enjoy, and yet the serpent shows up and says that God is not to be trusted. God is holding out on us. God may have surrounded us with all these good things, but they are just temptations for us. All of these good things that we just cannot touch. In this false teaching of the serpent, God is not a good God. He is a tempter. He is a curmudgeon. He has surrounded us with beautiful colors, savory tastes, the sound of music, and he has said, no. These are not for you to enjoy. This deception that is alive and well today, distracts us from the gospel because so often it takes our eyes off of God, off of the gospel, and instead places the eyes on what we do to retain our relationship with God. Now don't get me wrong, there is a place for self-denial. Jesus assumes that his disciples will fast. Jesus said that if we want to follow him, we will die to ourselves, pick up our crosses, and follow him. Self-denial is a part of the Christian life, but so often self-denial can be used to replace God rather than to know God. And so often people can substitute the goodness of the gospel of free grace with a God who demands that we earn our way to him by denying ourselves, by avoiding the pleasure of this world, by rejecting the goodness that surrounds us. This false teaching is so dangerous because it distracts us from the gospel. There's a second reason that Paul mentions here, and it's probably more at the forefront of his mind, at least in this, in this section. This false teaching is so dangerous because this rejection of God's good gifts is actually a rejection of God's goodness. This rejection of God's good gifts is actually a rejection of God's goodness. Another way to put this is it's actually a rejection of God himself. These false teachers say that creation is bad, that it distracts us from God, that it is not good, but that's not what the Bible says. I love the quote from C.S. Lewis where he says, God likes matter. He invented it. Another place, C.S. Lewis says, there's no point in trying to be more spiritual than God. God didn't create us as immortal spirits that are locked inside physical bodies. God created us both soul and body. The great hope of the Christian faith is that we look forward to a day where we will one day live with physical, resurrected bodies. Our hope as Christians is to not live forever as disembodied spirits, but to live in bodies that can breathe, eat, run, and jump. Genesis chapter 1 describes God's creation. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. God declared that his creation was good. But more than that, in Genesis chapter 2, we see the purpose for his creation. Chapter 2, verse 9. 
And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as well. What, are these, what does this verse tell us? Well, notice what the author of Genesis says. Every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. God created us to enjoy his creation. He created his creation to be enjoyed by us. And Psalm 19 tells us the purpose of God's creation. It's to point us to him. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day they pour out speech and night to night they reveal knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has sent a, set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. God created his creation to point us to him. And the way that our avoidance or our, our, our removal, our desire to not enjoy God's creation, this guilt that we experience, the way that dishonors God is because it actually is a rejection of God. John Calvin once said, in despising the gifts, we insult the giver. In despising the gifts, we insult the giver. As in Genesis chapter 2, when God created food, he did it very intentionally thinking, this is going to be delicious. God created steak and ribs, ice cream and brownies, burgers and fries, chips and salsa, mashed potatoes and gravy. He created all of those things as a sign of his goodness. But it's not just food. It's endorphins when we run. It's the joy that we experience at our accomplishments. It's the satisfaction that we have when we curl up with a good book. All of these things God created for us to enjoy and as a sign to point us to his goodness. That is the purpose of creation. And when we reject God's purpose for creation, we dishonor God. Several years ago, Crystal and I were in Africa. And while we were there, we had met some new friends. And uh, they invited us over to their house. And they spent all Sunday afternoon preparing food for us. They pulled out every stop for us and a few others as they wanted to entertain us and show us hospitality. They spent hours making food and they spent a lot of their money preparing food that they normally didn't get to enjoy. Now imagine if we had shown up and we rejected their offer for food. Maybe it was for the best of reasons. We, we felt, you know what, I, I feel guilty eating all of this good food because of how much it has cost you, how much you spent, so I'm, I'm not going to eat it. I'm going to let you enjoy it. Well, they would have been greatly insulted. They had made this food for us to enjoy, and by not enjoying it, that we were actually saying to them that we don't agree with the way that they are blessing us. We don't think that what they are doing for us is right. It was a great dishonor to him. It would have been a great dishonor to them. And in a way, when we have guilt over enjoying the good gifts of God, we actually dishonor God in the exact same way. We can dishonor God in the exact same way way. And so you might be saying, well, how how do we respond? And that's what the final two verses of this passage focus on. How do we actually enjoy God through his gifts? 
If God has actually given us his creation to enjoy, but also as a way to worship him, then how can we navigate this balance? The reality is idolatry is a very real thing. If we're not careful, our enjoyment of God's good gifts can actually slip into idolatry. All of us are guilty of this from time to time. But the enjoyment of gifts is not automatically a sign of idolatry. Let me give you a relatively ridiculous example. I'm convinced that one of the best foods on the face of the planet is Crystal's homemade key lime cheesecake. It is delicious. It is the perfect balance of sweetness and tartness. I, 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 don't, I don't know how she does it, but I love it. I'm very generous in sharing food, with, except for this. We have this unwritten agreement in our household that when she makes this, she gets one piece and I get the rest. I don't know what I'm going to do when our kids are able to start eating it. That's going to be a a big self-sacrifice there. Now, I love Crystal's cheesecake. I'm unashamed to say, I love Crystal's cheesecake. But I also love Crystal. Does Crystal's cheesecake compete with my love for my wife? It could. I hope not, but, but it's possible, right? It is, it is possible for gifts to compete with the giver in our love. But it's unlikely. If so, you'd say I was crazy. It's more possible that the good gift of her cheesecake will actually make me love her more. The ways that I praise her cheesecake, and believe me, I do praise it. The ways I praise her cheesecake are actually praises to Crystal. When I talk about how good it tastes, I'm actually complimenting her as a chef. When I, when I talk about how much I, I love it, I'm actually saying I'm, I'm so thankful that you were generous enough and, and selfless enough to make this for me. When I eat all of it, way too much in one sitting, I'm saying thank you so much for your selflessness, Crystal. By enjoying the gift, I'm actually enjoying the giver. That's what Paul describes in verses 4 and 5, right here. Let's reread them. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. What is the key to enjoying God by enjoying his gifts? Well, Paul explains it here. First thing he says is that it is made holy by the word of God. You might be wondering, well, does this, make, does this mean that we can enjoy anything provided that we read a passage of Scripture before we go play football, before we go watch football, before we fire up the grill? Not exactly. I think the word of God here, the reference is actually referring to God's creative words in Genesis 1 and 2. In other words, the key, the first thing that we must do to have the right mindset to enjoy God through his creation is to first recognize that God created these things good. Their origin is from God. But more than that, we have to recognize that when God created them, that he created them for us to enjoy. That is their purpose, for us to enjoy. And if we're going to overcome our guilt, we must first recognize that God's word says that these things are good and for our enjoyment. So the first key to this mindset is a reminder of creation. The second is a habitual reminder of our heart posture, of what we must do to receive these gifts the right way. Paul says that we do so with thanksgiving and with prayer. Ever wonder why we pray before meals? It's an expression of these two things. We thank God 
for giving us this food. And we recognize that God is the source of this food. Here's a question for you. Why do we stop with food? Why stop with food? G.K. Chesterton was an English poet in the beginning of the 1900s, and he said this, You say grace before meals. All right. But I say grace before the play and the opera and grace before the concert and the pantomime and grace before I open a book and grace before sketching and boxing and walking and playing and dancing and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. Imagine if we had this same sort of mindset, this mindset that says we are going to thank God before every single thing that we enjoy. Before you go to the high school to watch your child perform in a choir concert, you thank God for music. You thank God for your child. You thank God for the opportunity that they have to perform. Before your own choir concert or your basketball game, you thank God that you have this opportunity and that you cre- he created you to be able to enjoy this. Before you go on vacation, you thank God for the chance to rest and relax. Before you go to work, you thank God for your vocation. Before you start up your car, you thank God for a vehicle that runs. Before you put a CD player on, you thank God for music that you can enjoy. All of life is to be enjoyed. More accurately, all of life is to help us to enjoy God. So what if we took that seriously and we thanked God for everything that he has given us. That's Paul's desire for the church in Ephesus. I think that's God's desire for us here this morning to enjoy God by enjoying his gifts. As an overflow of God's goodness, God created a world where we can enjoy him through it. He created food, he created marriage, he created nature, hobbies, relationships, possessions, all of these things and more. God created so that we could enjoy them and ultimately enjoy him. And so as we go from here, would you commit yourselves to enjoying God by enjoying life? Perhaps that means you need to come to to grips with this guilt that creeps into your life anytime you spend money on nice things. Rather than uh, despise the good gifts of God, won't you just receive them with thanksgiving? Won't you just receive them with gratitude? Now, as I said, there is a place for self-denial. Generosity is supposed to mark the Christian's life. The Bible tells us to consider others better than ourselves. John, or excuse me, Jim Elliott uh, is right when he says, He who is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. There is a place for stewarding God's physical creation in order to honor the mission that God has given us. At the same time, it would be naive to say that we could exhaust all that the Bible has to say about this topic this morning. That we could exhaust all the Bible has to say about this topic in a sermon series. The key to understanding this is to habitually immerse ourselves in the Bible to understand the balance. To understand this balance that we see constantly on display in Scripture. Ancient Israel had their calendar set up for feasts and fasting. The entire calendar was set up on feasts and fasting. Fasting too much was detrimental. It was dishonoring to God because we weren't in, they weren't enjoying God's creation. At the same time, feasting too much was dishonoring to God as well. So how do we balance 
self-denial, generosity, with enjoyment of God's good gifts. Douglas Wilson is a pastor out in Idaho, and he, he says it this way. I think it's so helpful. He said, what you should do is put your kids to bed, secure, well-fed, and warm, and thank God from the bottom of your heart, and then plot how to extend that wonderful grace to others. If you don't have kids, the same thing applies to you. Enjoy the good gifts of God with gratitude from the bottom of your heart, and then do whatever you can to help people receive those same gifts to receive the gift of salvation, to receive the gifts of material provision, to receive the gifts of holistic family. Enjoy what God has given you and do what you can to help others experience the same blessing. You see, God's creation is to be enjoyed. It is not to replace us from God, or not to replace God, it is not to distract us from the mission of the gospel, but we would be wrong to think that the two are diametrically opposed that they are in competition with one another. This past morning, or this past Monday morning, I got up with Mara, as usual, at 3.30. As usual, I was ready for the day at 4.30 because I couldn't get back to sleep. And and so I uh, started studying the Bible as I normally do. And and yet this time she didn't wake up around 5 like she normally does. At least not, not right away. So I spent some time reading the Bible, spent some time in prayer, but the work of the church, things that are going on here, just weighing heavy on my heart. And so I turned my attention to this sermon uh, and began prayerfully reading through a couple books. I I usually love the the quiet of our house before everyone else gets up, but, but Monday morning it was just heavy. It was just oppressive to me. And so I'm reading these books, and page after page goes by, I have nothing to show for it. Nothing is coming to mind. My mind is distracted about the uncertainty of the facility situation, countless other things. And then down the hall, as I'm struggling through this and just, just not having a great day, down the hall, a sound. That's Mara. She had given me more time this morning, but now she's up and she's talking to herself. I think to myself, well, she'll be fine. And so I keep reading. And 10 minutes go by and the coups have gotten louder. The laughter has gotten louder and they're just nonsense, but they clearly communicate to me just this absolute joy for life. God can teach you a lot if you're listening. So I put down the books, went to Mara's room, grabbed my daughter, got a huge smile from her. Life is full of pain, life is filled with sorrow but it's filled with good gifts from our good Father too. God has given us so much. He's beautifully poured out for us beautiful gift after beautiful gift. And so as you leave here today, your charge to be a good Christian, quote unquote, is to enjoy the life that God has given you. And thank God from the bottom of your heart for all that he has done. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the goodness that is on display in the gospel. We thank you so much for the goodness that you reveal to us in the countless gifts that you pour out on us. We ask for forgiveness for the times where we can have a tendency to compare ourselves with others, either through envy 
jealousy, or as a way to feel guilty that we aren't doing enough for you. God, help us to be good stewards of all that you have entrusted to us, to love you and to honor you through the gifts you have given, and also through the giving up of the gifts that you have given. Bless us this week as we desire to honor you by enjoying the lives that you have given us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.